0: This is the voice of The Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics,
1: trends,
0: discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to The Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. Hello. From a remote location in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Britain, we have Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. A massive earthquake on the border between Turkey and Syria struck on Monday, bringing unimaginable death and destruction. To learn about this and its potential prophetic implications, we'll turn to Mihailo Zekic.
2: Yes, so it wasn't actually one earthquake. It was at least three hit southern Turkey and northern Syria on Monday, as he mentioned. Um, places as far away as Cyprus and Lebanon even felt tremors. And the earthquakes cause quite, I mean, the Mediterranean is not a stranger to earthquakes, but. these particular ones caused quite a bit of damage they fell near the Turkish city of Gaziantep which has a metropolitan area of over two million people last time I checked this morning the death toll was approaching 22,000 people with the vast majority of those being in Turkey and it seems with every day there's another couple of thousand added to the death toll a lot of the buildings were old and of poor quality in the area and again it's a high population center so there's there was a lot of destruction a lot of rubble created a lot of people trapped under the rubble that have since died Um, as far as syria is concerned the region of northern syria it hit is actually where a lot of people were living that were displaced from their original homes from the syrian civil war so they're already fleeing disaster and then this hits them and so I mean, that's the tragic thing about this. Like This part of the world is, already has so many problems with man-made disasters like war and terrorism. And now these earthquakes come and hit these large population communities, these communities of people already running away from other disasters. And it just seems like there's really no end in sight to uh, all the problems going on there. So
0: let's just talk about uh, potential follow-on effects from this uh how how do you feel like this might affect turkey
2: well turkey's actually headed for a presidential election in may for about 20 years uh, islamist strongman recep tayyip erdogan has governed the country and it's a bit of an interesting dynamic because a lot of people are making comparisons with this earthquake and another one that hit istanbul in 1999 Istanbul, of course, is Turkey's largest city, about 17,000, a bit more than that. Uh, people lost their lives in that. And it was a really big traumatic uh, event for Turkey. You could almost think of it as like Turkey's Hurricane Katrina. And at that time, Turkey was dealing with a lot of problems like corruption, inflation. And this young, dynamic mayor of Istanbul named Recep Tayyip Erdogan capitalized on all the problems everybody had was having and feeling and managed to be elected prime minister in 2003. Since then, he's manipulated um, circumstances. He's president now. He's eroded Turkish democracy. He's trying to set himself up to govern for life. And Erdogan's not exactly popular anymore. I, um, I mentioned that part of the reason he was elected was on a platform to curb inflation to clean out corruption to be a fresh face uh, compared to turkey's political establishment at this point 20 years on erdoğan is the political establishment inflation is sky high and a lot of erdoğan's inner circle has have mysteriously become millionaires for no apparent reason so all the problems that erdoğan claimed to come and Uh, get rid of, he now represents all these problems and a lot of people are making comparisons okay, uh, this earthquake in 1999 helped catapult him into power, will this earthquake do something similar in getting him out of power? And some headlines are already popping up uh, criticizing his response to the earthquake saying that the government has no fault to blame safer infrastructure investment or that kind of thing it was completely outside of his hands so again erdogan has eroded turkish democracy quite a bit he has uh, pulled uh, a lot of levers to keep himself in power at this point but with this election coming up all these problems happening and the, the icing on the cake of this earthquake, the public discontent with him may be so big that he'll have no choice but to accept a landslide defeat. So we'll have to wait and see.
0: So if Erdogan is uh, pushed out of power, what sort of prophetic implications does that have?
2: Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Flurry, has pointed to a prophecy in the book of Obadiah um, about this. Ob- Obadiah is uh, about the nation of edom it's uh, which who are the mo- a- ancestral peoples of the modern turks and uh, uh, obadiah specifically prophesies uh that edom or turkey will come and betray um their brother the brothers the israelite nations And the interesting thing, I I think, is Erdogan, he's an Islamist. He sponsors Hamas. He is by no means friend of the Jewish state in the Middle East. He has a habit of getting on uh, America's – like stepping on their toes with things like uh, deals with the Russians. So a betrayal implies there's some sort of measure of trust in, in there. And I don't think any world leader actually trusts Erdogan that much. So we don't know for sure, but that could imply a more moderate person ruling in Ankara that the nations of Israel can trust a lot more.
0: So let's talk about Syria now. What uh, what sort of implications do you think the earthquake may have for Syria?
2: Uh, here's uh, where things get interesting. Syria is the, uh, the geopolitical elephant in the room. Um, Erdogan is an Islamist, but he's technically a NATO uh, member. Turkey is still technically a democracy. People are fine with sending rescue groups and uh, foreign aid donations to him. Syria is ruled by Bashar al-Assad. That's the uh, the dictator that got infamous for uh, dumping chemical weapons on his own people and uh, shelling his own cities to to rubble and he's under a lot of sanctions a lot of governments like the united states don't even recognize him and a lot of people don't really know how to deal with him. but with this earthquake happening assad is reaching out to some international partners and they're biting on wednesday he made an official plea to the european union to uh, intervene and the eu said sure they've uh, committed to sending uh, millions of dollars to syria and are even having a donors conference in march um, and considering the EU does, normally doesn't like publicly dealing with Assad, the f- that they jumped so quickly on this to deal with the Assad government is interesting. Yes, it's a disaster, but there's already NGO groups on the ground that are working, say, in rebel-held areas, and aid coming come in that way. And northern Syria is to put, traditionally a rebel stronghold. Um, Other Arab groups that have for years before shunned uh, Assad, like Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, they've also pledged millions of dollars worth of aid and are coming to his rescue. And even the United States waived some sanctions that would normally have stopped people from sending in aid, even after they said they weren't planning on uh, on doing that, or at least working through Assad. So normally this pariah, this you could almost call him the Middle Eastern Kim Jong-un, uh, is all of a sudden getting all these attentions from these Western groups, from these supposed American allies, millions of dollars worth of aid, and that's assuming he even sends it, bothers sending it to the people, and not doesn't siphon it off for himself. So the earthquake is doing a lot to help rehabilitate his image.
0: So Syria is also a a nation that factors in end time prophecy. How might uh, this rehabilitation of its uh, reputation among these other nations uh, factor into that?
2: Well, a prophecy we go to uh, on this program often is Psalm 83. It talks about an end-time alliance of various Middle Eastern peoples that has never happened before. Um, Verse 4 talks about them forming for the purpose of blotting out uh, the the name of Israel from remembrance. And one of the people mentioned in this alliance are the Hagarines, which are the ancestral peoples of modern Syria. Now, a lot of the other groups mentioned in there, uh, Eden we talked about, that's Turkey, um, the the Gulf states, Jordan, these are all considered moderate Arabs, and they've shunned Assad for quite a bit. And Asher, or the ancestors of Germany, are also mentioned in, in there as well. So you see this group of Middle Eastern and European countries considered moderate banding together. And for the longest time, they didn't like Assad too much. For the longest time, they were actually trying to oust Assad. But this and recent events before this and before the earthquake as well suggest they're warming up to Assad and accepting that he's going to stay in power and trying to normalize relations again. And this earthquake, I won't say it's so much a uh, a shift uh, in policy. It's more just giving everybody an excuse to do even more of what they've been doing before, outreaching or reaching out to Assad and uh, helping bring him back into the international community and propping up his regime. So we're seeing Assad being brought more and more into this European, moderate Arab fold, whereas before it was considered part of Iran's camp. But now we're seeing it become closer, in a sense, to the moderate Arab group.
0: Well, there's a a whole lot to uh, unpack there. If you want more information about this, we have a a handful of articles that uh, we'd like to refer you to that we'll link to in the show notes regarding Turkey and Syria and their role in end-time prophetic events. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Zekich. To the Ukraine war now, where we're tracking Russia's ongoing preparations for a major new offensive. For this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques.
3: Yes, there was a foreign policy report on Wednesday about these preparations that are now well underway for a new major Russian offensive on Ukraine. Uh, The report is based on Ukrainian military intel, and it says that Russia has prepared 1,800 tanks, almost 4,000 armored vehicles, 2,700 artillery systems— 800 multiple rocket launch systems, 400 fighter jets, and 300 helicopters. So this is, you know, just an eye-popping amount of equipment that's being amassed. And this comes at the same time that reports are coming out about a steady increase in the number of Russian troops on the battlefields. So there hasn't been any news from Russia about a second mobilization, but it's happening anyway even without any, you know, over acknowledgment of it. And Russia may now have well north of 300,000 soldiers there to operate all of this equipment. So this is uh, far more than Russia came at Ukraine with last February. And this time, instead of being spread all around Ukraine, these forces and all of this equipment are highly concentrated in eastern Ukraine. So this shows that even though we're almost a year into the war now, it may be just getting started. Um, The Ukrainians, I think, are more galvanized than ever to fight Russia. They're talking more and more about the Holodomor when Stalin and the Russians intentionally starved millions of them. And everything that Russia's done to them over the last 12 months are just, you know, fresh wounds that are the most provocative uh, and profoundly provocative things that could have happened. At this point, I believe that Ukraine would not just fight to the last man, they would fight to the last woman, and the last Mm. 10-year-old boy who is big enough to hold a Kalashnikov. So that's the Ukrainian side. And then on the Russian side, they increasingly feel that they're also fighting for their very existence. That's partly because of terminal demographics, and it's partly because the corridors you know, those, those corridors through which Russia has historically been invaded by Napoleon, panzer divisions, Mongol hordes, those eight corridors are not secure right now. They were during the Soviet times because Russia controlled all the land in its periphery. But right now, those corridors are mostly insecure, and two of the most vulnerable ones run right through Ukraine. And so I think that's why this whole buildup is happening. That's why more and more Russians are being yanked out of their lives and sent onto these battlefields. Um, more and more kit is being amassed in the east. And this makes it look like the war could go on for a long and terrible time. Peter Zion spoke about this this week. He said 2022 was honestly just the warm up and the skirmishes. Fighting in 2023 is going to be a lot more severe. The real war is only now starting. So that's a, it's a depressing forecast. But I think if you look at the facts on the ground, it does look accurate. You know, it, it is uh, pretty
0: difficult to wrap your mind around uh, what all is happening there. Reading about this, um, uh, one statistic that really. Uh, uh, Opened my eyes was uh, the the estimate now that uh, that Russia has over two hundred thousand dead and wounded uh, over there. It's definitely uh, it it shows that their determination to uh, prosecute this to a successful conclusion, whatever the cost, as you brought out there. And not only is uh, do you have uh, the Western nations that continue to supply Ukraine with uh, armaments and and uh, the means to combat uh, Russia, but Russia is also getting help, uh, evidence from uh, of China supporting its effort over there this week.
3: That's right, yes. There was a report in the uh, Wall Street Journal on February 4th. Uh, the journal got a hold of the records for about 84,000 shipments of various kinds of sensitive technology that have gone into Russia since the war started a year ago. Um, so all of this is during the period after the West launched the whole you know, economic pressure campaign that kind of red flagged a lot of items that are critical to the Russian military and said, no one can send these in there, we're trying to slowly cripple the Russian war machine. Um, and the overwhelming majority of these 84,000 shipments were from China. And they were for things like fighter jet components, Navigation technology, jamming equipment, those are things that the Russian war machine needs to keep on humming along. Um, You know, Western authorities said that by banning those imports, that would kind of throw a wrench in in Russia's efforts. But now we see that on a large scale, China has undermined those efforts and has kept the war going, you know, from the Russian side. So uh, maybe you can just... uh
0: talk about the, the the prophetic overview of what we can expect to see happen here.
3: Okay, sure. Yeah, well, uh, even just to focus on the, the Chinese assistance there, I think that's very prophetically significant. We have an article up on thetrumpet.com. It's called, Why the Trumpet Watches Russia Allying with China. And I'll just read one quote from that. It says, for over half a century, the Trumpet and our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, have been expecting Russia and China to partner up. We've expected it because Bible prophecy says that in the time of the end, the Russia-China axis will lead an Asian military bloc that fields an army larger than any the world has ever seen. End quote. Um, and then from there, this article goes on to discuss how this you know, this Asian mega army will play a major role in the next world war. And it says the fact that the Russia-China axis is now very much on the scene, which we see even in this Chinese support for Russia's war. That means, quote, the fulfillment of these Bible prophecies is astonishingly near. And the prophecies that this article is talking about are very specific. Ezekiel 38 is one of the big ones. It talks about Russia being the head country Of this Asian axis. It also mentions an ancient name for China, showing that the Chinese will be kind of the number two power in the axis. So when we see Russia's war, and also when we see China's ongoing support for that war, and all these shipments of components that that Russia needs, I think we can view that as um, the formation of that axis, that axis is being formed. And we can see that as a prelude to much bigger wars to come really uh, significant.
0: Look at that trends article, why the trumpet watches Russia allying with China, the fact that China has remained faithful uh, by Russia's side in in light of uh, everything that's happening over there truly is extraordinary and prophetically very important. Thank you for that, Mr. Jacques. With these tragedies occurring in Ukraine, and we talked about Turkey and Syria and uh, also other places, there remains a steady flow of immigrants into European countries. In Germany, concerns over migrants is again reaching a breaking point. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer.
4: Yes, migrants are very much back in the news in Europe this week. Spiegel uh, last week had a long profile kind of on the re-emergence of the migrant crisis, they had some stats there where uh, it's looking like they're still finalizing the figures. But 2022, they had twice as many migrants as they had arriving in Germany in 2020, not including the one million refugees uh, came into Ukraine, uh, into Germany, largely over the last year so um it's the it's the largest number of asylum seekers that you've had arriving in germany in the past six years since the refugee crisis uh, and so it's really putting renewed stress on the german government one one point that really stood out to me they talked about uh, they started with the example of a green party leader who was basically just reaching out and saying we're full we can't take any more asylum seekers in this particular small town uh, in that, in, the, in a year alone, this uh, one particular region, they had 500 people from Syria, Afghanistan, and North Africa to house, and then 1,500 refugees coming in from Ukraine. And Spiegel wrote, the fact that a leading local politicians, politician with the Greens, a traditionally left-leaning party, is calling for migration to his district to be limited, shows the extent to which the situation has become overloaded. So we are really seeing the potential of a new migrant crisis in Germany, now, 2022 is not the same as 2015 or 2016. I think there is, it is different when you're having the, the million migrants arrive from Ukraine as opposed to Syria. You know, The Ukrainian refugees are more similar culturally. They tend to be women and children rather than young men in the same way that it was coming from Syria. But a million people, still a million people that you've got to feed, and house. And uh, that places a lot of strain on a, on a lot of different aspects of the state. And now we've had the uh, the earthquake that we heard about as well. And, you know, I think at the moment, just the staggering death toll is the main thing to focus on. But there are going to be geopolitical fallouts from this. Part of that, you could see with all of the damage that's being done to so many of these cities across Turkey and in Syria, these places that don't really have the resources to to rebuild is more migration coming coming towards europe uh you're seeing in austria as well a reaction to the migrant crisis or or renewed action on migrants where they are uh, working to put up more border fences their chancellor is going around other countries in the region paying for other countries to put up border fences Uh, so it really looks like we are heading kind of back towards this being a major political issue for germany and for all of europe
0: It is interesting hearing these uh, stories coming from Europe where we have politicians who have really criticized the United States, particularly when Donald Trump was in power, any thought of putting up walls, trying to prevent uh, mass migration into the country, illegal immigration. Uh, it does, it, to, to see some of these, even the more left-wing politicians kind of coming around to to recognize this is something that has to be controlled. If you're going to have sovereignty as a country, you have to, to you know, have borders that actually mean something. Uh, but this the political implications of this within these European countries, particularly because so much of this immigration is is coming from uh, countries where you're talking about uh, people of different religions. It, it seems like uh, race and religion are kind of uh, very much in the mix as people are talking about why this is so problematic. It's not merely economic.
4: That's a, that's a really good point. I mean, firstly I cannot resist commenting on the hypocrisy point that you brought up and and uh, the way these same politicians will have a go at America. I mean, it's one of it's up there to me with with, you know, like Nike criticizing America for slavery while having their shoes made by slaves in terms of hypocrisy, where the European Union will literally pay. A convicted war criminal to lock migrants in concentration camps and give weapons to Turkish border guards to shoot illegal immigrants and then complain that Donald Trump is immoral for building a border wall. It is, um, mm-hmm. you know, totally hypocritical. And uh, yeah, they are actually dramatically more violent in defense of their borders than anything America has ever done or even accused of doing. And. Uh, but then you're right. The arrival of all of these—this is why I think it's the the ones coming from the Middle East that uh, that do possess that do do present that larger social challenge. Certainly, housing a million refugees from Ukraine is a is an economic challenge. There's not the same risk of social schism there, and uh, you know that's why you can really see the potential. These are this that you know they're still coming. They're adding to the ones that are already here, uh, and it is volatile. If you want proof of that, look at Sweden. I mean, this is one of the. I think that Sweden this is one of the giant underreported stories of 2022 is just the outbreak of horrific violence in. You know, the country that we associate with peacefulness and Lego and flat pack furniture. I mean, they're not all from Sweden, but (laughs) Scandinavia. Uh, And now you're getting it's becoming the land of gang violence and drive by shootings and grenades on the streets as you get uh, violent gang warfare coming in from across the Middle East. And when you've then got a clearly identifiable other that you can link in many cases accurately with this rise in violence, well, then that's you You start to get uh, you know, none of the left wing parties want to touch that you start to get the rise of very right wing parties. You've had parties with basically Nazi links become normalized in Sweden now. And uh, it's you, you get this, you get a lot of upheaval, you get the rise of the far right. And ultimately, you get a strong desire for a strong leader to come in and somebody who's going to to take control of the situation. We're seeing that dynamic across the world. We saw that dynamic in Germany in 2015, 2016, and the statistics that we're looking at that are coming out of 2020 suggest we're going to see that dynamic very strongly in Germany again.
0: I, I definitely like to uh, to get you to talk more about that uh, that trend that is very prophetically significant. The 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 people looking for stronger leadership to deal with something like this. I'd just like like to get your comment on something else that happened. Against the backdrop of everything that we're talking about, the United Nations says we're going to award uh, Angela Merkel a special prize for something that she did. Tell us about that.
4: Yes, that's right. Amidst all of this um, turmoil caused, well, Basically, by Angela Merkel and her her decision to invite in all the migrants, and this is something that has had long lasting ramifications for Germany, she received the UNESCO Peace Prize in the Ivory Coast for this open door uh, policy, and uh, you know I think it shows that some of this wider split that there are still a lot of people, even after. I don't know. When, when Merkel lost the election, there were a lot of people really blaming Angela Merkel and blaming her for the, for doing a lot of damage to Germany through her open door policy and uh, just kind of exasperating this split leading to the far right in Germany. There are still a lot of people, though, I guess, who are very keen on very keen on this and they are still willing to fight to allow more migrants in there. And you think that these that attitude is just going to lead to uh, an even bigger clash eventually.
0: Well, at least uh, there's this attitude among the internationalists in, uh, mm-hmm. in the United Nations. Uh, as you say, within Europe, it really is more the politicians who are willing to stand up and to, take, to, to stop this kind of immigration that are gaining more public popularity. Uh, talk about how this plays into biblical prophecy.
4: Yeah, So just over a month ago, uh, Joshua Mitchell had an article on our website. It's called Germans grown for a strong state. Uh, I won't bother going over back over the news on that, but he just talked about this rise in desire for a strong leader uh, in regards to the migration crisis and a lot of um, other situations. But... Uh, there's a lot of Bible prophecies that we're watching that tell us we're going to get a strong leader coming soon in Europe. We have a free booklet as well. A strong German leader is imminent by a uh, trumpet editor in chief, Gerald Flurry, that goes goes through a whole lot of these. But, uh, you know, Daniel chapter eight is one of the, the key key chapters that talks about the rise of a strong man in Europe. They, there were, uh, Strong men in history that uh, showed us what this man would be like, but the primary fulfillment of this chapter is something that will happen in this end time. All the book of Daniel is is, is an end time prophecy, and so uh, we've been watching for this individual to to come to power, and he'll come to power in uh, by flatteries. You know, this this can, it contains connotations of not coming into power by the usual route, and by usual politics. So you kind of have this picture of. Dysfunction and chaos and usual politics hasn't produced a strong leader and someone kind of comes along and uh, and smashes the system and takes Europe in a, in a very different direction and you've suddenly got a, a strong man that people can can get behind and you can really see the potential for the migrant crisis to be one of several factors that feeds into that dynamic and uh, helped lead to this paralysis, but then also this growing desire for a strong leader who can just s- smash his way through that. And then, as the book of Daniel goes on to show, this strong leader plays a, a massive role in, uh, in end-time events and the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So he's a key individual to watch for.
0: We'll link to that article and booklet in the show notes a strong german leader is imminent thank you mr palmer china sent a spy balloon that drifted slowly across the entire united states and this revealed a lot to china not just about the military targets it surveilled but about america's will to defend itself for this story we'll turn to andrew miller
1: yeah, this really is one of the uh, most shameful foreign policy debacles America's been into in a while. Uh, the Pentagon detected um, not last Saturday, but the Saturday before that, that a, um, a balloon was floating into uh, Alaskan airspace. And uh, instead of shooting it down, uh, or or even really alerting Congress or the media about it, uh, they let that flow all the way over Alaskan airspace, over Western Canada, into Montana. Uh, It uh, floated into Montana last week on Thursday. Uh, That's when the American media (laughs) finally found out about it. Uh, The defense department convened a meeting to decide what to do since it was now officially over the continental u.s um decided not to shoot it down because they said well some despite being over one of the least populated states in the union they thought shrapnel might hit somebody uh yeah so they
0: (laughs) such a such an amazing defense of their position Right. They're, they're afraid of, that shrapnel is going to hurt people, without any regard to the uh, defensive uh, applications that this might have. That China might be uh, getting a lot of information that could hurt a whole lot of
1: people. Right, because after after it um, entered Montana, it floated uh, all the way over Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, all the way across the continental U.S. to um, to the Carolinas, where they did finally shoot it down after it floated out over the Atlantic Ocean. But uh, I mean, many people have done maps that like we've got nuclear silos in the uh, on that air path. Uh, we've got uh, air bases and military bases and strategic oil pipelines and a, a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of strategic assets over the path of that balloon. That it. Um, it could be surveilling the uh the chinese tried to use the <laughs> defense once we called them out on it that it was um meteorological probe uh that's not what the pentagon said when it entered montana airspace they said it was a um surveillance uh a surveillance probe uh and that was what the american media was reporting on now that it's um now that it's off the uh the coast, uh, who shot it down off the coast, they've sent some divers down to get it and actually take a look at it, and they're still, um, still doing quite a bit of analysis on that. But the military finally did, uh, come down and uh, give us some further information that the Chinese balloon shot down by the U.S. was equipped to detect and collect intelligence signals as part of a huge military-linked aerial surveillance program that targeted more than 40 countries. Uh, So not a civilian probe, but actually operated by the People's Liberation Army of China uh, and not uh, just surveying barometric pressure uh, and things like that, but actually part of a bigger program uh, to collect sensitive information on other countries. And they say this this uh, this project that we know there's about forty balloons that we <laughs> that we know of over five countries. There's another one actually uh, set from the same program that floated over Latin America the same time this one was floating over. Uh, The continental united states so i guess it'll be interesting to see if it had any um like remote uh remote broadcasting ability or whether it had to be collected because if it had remote broadcasting ability it may have already gotten all the information and then sent it back to china before we that's why (laughs) there have been um Several uh, congressmen saying that we should have shot it down when it entered Montana airspace. Actually, we probably should have shot it down when it entered <laughs> Alaskan airspace, yeah. since the Pentagon knew about it. Because if it's broadcasting, it's I think the the Babylon Bee, one of the better satire websites in America. Uh, as soon as it entered, uh, as soon as it entered uh, Montana airspace, their prediction was that Biden was going to let it continue its spying mission and then shoot it down when it was done which is actually exactly what happened he he let it continue spying all mm. across the united states and as soon as it got over the over the atlantic ocean where there's nothing left in america to spy on uh then you shot it down so he can he can try to claim like oh i'm big and tough and i shot down this balloon is like yeah but you, you shot it down when it didn't matter anymore yeah. <laughs> you you shoot down the espionage balloons before the mission not after the mission
0: yeah, there's 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 absolutely no way that the uh, information that that balloon was collecting needed to return to China in order to be of any use uh, to the Chinese, uh, and it is more evidence of just how beholden to China the Biden administration is. They're unwilling to uh, to challenge them, and uh, this is a, about as strong of a sign as uh, America's broken will as as you will find. Stephen Fleury wrote about this in a trumpet brief this week. His uh, article is titled America Weaker Than a Balloon. You can find that uh, at thetrumpet.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. And uh, it does... It does really uh, paint a picture of just how weak uh, America has become. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up. America green lighting nuclear cooperation between Iran and Russia. Still more evidence of, of the foreign policy direction under the Biden administration. We'll also look at a new report showing China has more ICBM launchers than the U.S. does. Germans contemplating the return of military conscription and former Twitter execs being grilled by lawmakers on Capitol Hill. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Jesus Christ, when he was asked about the signs of the end time, warned about wars and rumors of wars. We have a few stories here that highlight just that. Of course, we already spoke about the war taking place in Ukraine. But we'll look now at Iran's nuclear program and its cooperation with nuclear-armed Russia. The Biden administration in the United States just gave its blessing to this dangerous collusion. To learn about this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekich.
2: Yes. And normal days. This story would be the one to get the 10 minute slot rather. But uh, these aren't normal days. Uh, so um, it's pretty significant news that actually got missed by a lot of people. The Washington Free Beacon reported this week that the Biden administration renewed uh, a series of sanction waivers that allows Russia and uh, Iran to cooperate on different uh Aspects of Iran's nuclear program. Longtime listeners of our show would know about uh, how much we follow Iran's nuclear program push for a nuclear bomb to wipe Israel uh, off the map. And we've also covered in the trumpet quite a bit about Iranian and uh, Russian collaboration with the war in Ukraine. And uh, last month. It was last month, January 31st, when these waivers were signed, but they were actually kept under wraps. Congress wasn't even notified until February 3rd, when the Free Beacon started making inquiries, and the Free Beacon got got to see some um, material that was undisclosed to the public. The waivers allow Russia to send uranium to Iran uh, for its for certain nuclear reactors, and also to make money off of the off of these dealings without penalty and these can potentially amount to billions of dollars so not only is iran wrapping up its uh, nuclear program getting source from russia which of course uh, is a big source of uh, different uh, resor- natural resources like uranium but um, russia is also potentially getting billions of dollars that can funnel into its ukraine war and of course the collaboration from these two enemies of the united states will thicken and america's giving its blessing now under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be uh, on the table, but as we in the trumpet have talked often uh, uh, on the program about a prophecy in Second Kings 14 about there being a conspiracy within America to blot out the name of Israel or ruin America to the point where it basically disintegrates as a nation – and all of this uh, fits into that pattern. What's interesting is these uh, sanction waivers technically go back to the uh, 2015 JCPOA nuclear deal. Um, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz even so far as went to state that what these waivers uh, mean is pretty obvious. The Biden administration is so desperate to get a nuclear deal on the table. It's bringing back the, um, Amer- what America gave to that deal without actually making a deal, without getting anything on the Iranian side. So we just talked about how desperate America was to kowtow to China with the balloon, and they're doing similar things with the Iranians as well. Um, the Trumpet will hopefully have some more coverage on this on the website in the coming week, but um, until now, uh, we'll, yeah, again, we'll have, uh, we'll have more coverage of this coming up.
0: Well, th- this, uh, this definitely is one of those stories that uh, reading America under attack uh, will illuminate uh, dramatically, just knowing that there is this uh, this intent by this administration to undermine America's interests, and particularly Chapter 5, that's silencing a critic that talks about uh, the way that the Obama administration came after General Michael Flynn, uh, because he was exposing the dangers of the Iran nuclear deal, the fact that the Biden administration continues to perse- pursue that disastrous policy uh, is quite extraordinary. But do check that out. We'll link to that, uh, that chapter in the show notes for uh, the program today. Thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. We'll look now at China's nuclear program and its missile systems to deliver them. A new report shows that its capability, in one sense, now outpaces that of the United
3: States. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, China has now overtaken the United States in the number of land-based intercontinental ballistic Missile Launchers. That was the conclusion of a Wall Street Journal report published Tuesday, uh, which is built on congressional testimony from the U.S. Strategic Command. So... America still has more submarine-based launchers than China and more long-range bombers, and we have more nuclear warheads than China, but land-based ICBMs are very much connected to nuclear warheads since they're, you know, the delivery systems for them. So the fact that China has overtaken the U.S. with these launchers, this is seen as a signal of just kind of the scale of China's broader ambitions. And it shows that unless America adjusts its strategy, then China will soon overtake take it in other categories as well. Mike Rogers is the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, and he said, China is rapidly approaching parity with the United States. We cannot allow that to happen. The time for us to adjust our force posture and the increased capabilities to meet this threat is now. So, you know, this is just one metric so far that China is leading in, but it shows that they are very much on the warpath and they could soon surpass America in uh, other key metrics as well. Any
0: other uh, developments that China has made that you, that are worth reporting,
3: military developments? Yes. Uh, I think a big part of really what makes China's focus on these land-based ICBM launchers so alarming is that these are you know, intended mostly to deliver nuclear warheads on enemy nations. And the Chinese are, we know that they're not at all transparent with their nuclear expansion, uh, but there are undeniable signs that China is focusing more and more on nuclear weapons. The best estimates now say that China will have 1,500 warheads by 2035. That's up from just three or 400 in 2021. So just a rapid expansion that's now underway. And last year, the Pentagon published its policy document called the Nuclear Posture Review. And part of it said, by the 2030s, the United States will, for the first time in its history, face two major nuclear powers as strategic competitors and potential adversaries. So, you know, that's Russia, which has long been a nuclear power. And now China is is joining them as something that's, you know, approaching parity with the U.S. So that is just a, a deeply worrying reality.
0: Where would you send people who want uh, information about the prophetic significance of what China's up to?
3: Well, we, we uh, you know, we see China building up its nuclear arsenal and its delivery systems for its warheads. And of course, this happened. This is happening in the context of what Mihailo just discussed with Iran's nuclear program. It's happening at the same time that Russia is waging its war on Ukraine with the dangers of that going nuclear rising all the time. Um, so I think that All of these developments really expose just how serious the nuclear threat is. And if you look at Bible prophecy, there are several passages that talk about a major war that will soon break out. And there are details showing that that will be a nuclear war. So we have a a booklet all about that, and it's called Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door uh, by Mr. Gerald Flurry. That's the one I would point people to.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. As part of its effort to improve its military capabilities, Germans are considering the return of compulsory military service. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer.
4: We've often talked about the way that fear of Russia is prompting Europe to make changes. We saw more of that this week uh, as reintroducing conscription within Germany has become uh, an increasingly hot topic with several different individuals or senior politicians. You had the German parliamentary commissioner for the armed forces calling for this, uh, as well as the chief of the German Navy, uh, And they want Germany to bring back conscription because they need more soldiers. It's just such a simple, clear example of uh, exactly what we've been talking about, that you're going to have fear of Russia prompt Europe to become uh, a much more of an assertive military power. And uh, can there be a better example of that in pulling back, calling back conscription? I think what is interesting, though, about the way that they're doing that and some of the details here of what they're talking about doing is uh, the German defense minister, Karl Theodor zu Gutenberg, was the one that got rid of conscription in 2011. And his thinking behind that was basically to try and turn the German army from this um, more ponderous, larger force that was designed to throw out as many soldiers as possible to slow down a Soviet invasion and make it something that was more lighter, more precise, more mobile, so it could intervene quickly in places around the world. And it does seem like the way that people are talking about introducing conscription is something that maintains still uh, a lot of that. So the chief of the German Navy talked about uh, a Norwegian model of military service. So rather than everybody going into the military when they, they take a se- become a certain age, there's an examination when they turn 19. And then they draw upon a much smaller, more motivated percentage of each year group to then be drafted into the army. So you have something that kind of is like what Gutenberg wanted in that it's more focused and maneuverable, but is in much larger quantities than they are at the moment. That's the core is just Germany feels like it doesn't have enough soldiers right now. uh, And this is the best way to solve that problem quickly.
0: I do remember when uh, Gutenberg made that change. We we had talked about just the uh, the way that he was leading Germany into an era where they were more open about uh, the military. The military was was stronger. They he was you know he described the uh, the conflict in Afghanistan as a war. He was talking more openly about German militarism in a way that politicians before had been very hesitant to do. Uh, We've come quite a long way in the last uh, 11, 12 years with Germany, 13 years since that, that uh, decision was made. And it, uh, we're definitely well beyond the point when Germans are skittish about uh, talking about the importance of having a robust military. Uh, how, do you, how does this fit in with uh, the larger trend that we see in Germany militarily?
4: Yeah, I think Zu Gutenberg's ending of conscription did have some pretty big and far-reaching implications. I mean, it meant that the German military had to advertise Mm -hmm. and recruit, which you don't have to do when you can draft people. And so you have exactly, as you said, it's become more normalized. You're now having the German military going into schools and producing TV shows for the Internet about how cool it is to serve in the German military uh, it really has kind of reshaped some of the the fundamental relationship between the uh, the German society and and its military. And I don't think anybody calling for the reintroduction of the, of conscription wants to undo any of that. But I think it really does gets, get back to this point where uh, all along we Trump editor-in chief Gerald flurry has focused on well, watch Germany's reaction to what is happening in Ukraine. I mean, really, this has been what he said anytime Russia invades anybody. Watch how this is going to change Europe, especially watch how this is going to change Germany. On the very day that Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, he had an email that went out, and he said the most important nation to watch right now is Germany. How will it respond to Putin's war on Ukraine? The Ukraine war is going to speed up the rise of the prophesied German-led Holy Roman Empire. And then, of course, we got Germany's um, you know, massive announcement on their defense budget that has since been watered down a little, but still is a big turnaround on their military spending. And you've got kind of Poland going gangbusters on the, their military and uh, all of these changes throughout Europe. And now you're looking at Germany just trying to come up with as many ways as possible of how can we increase our army on our army size as quickly as possible? Which, like you said, given Germany's pretty reluctant relationship with its with its army in the decades after World War II. Uh, is, a, is a significant turnaround. And uh, this is one, you know, he was making these forecasts, even the plain truth was saying, well, watch for Europe to uh, arm in response to what Russia does. And uh, again, this is right in line with Bible prophecy, that Bible prophecy pro- forecast the revival of the Holy Roman Empire in Europe, this same kind of crusading spirit that we've seen rise up again and again in Europe. And the uh, Bible prophecy even says that this, this army is going to, Uh, have a clash with Russia at some point. It's kind of got an interesting relationship with Russia where it can kind of rise. It's got some commonalities in that they both dislike the United States, um, but they're also headed for a clash. And so uh, Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Flurry were able to forecast that while you're going to see a fear of Russia lead to the rise of this Holy Roman Empire, and we're seeing little bits of evidence like this of, of this happening almost weekly now.
0: We have an article from Mr. Gerald Flurry from our May June 2022 Trumpet Print Edition. Germany is transforming before your eyes. That gives more of that prophetic perspective. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. One final story with U.S. Republicans now in control of the House of Representatives. They are launching investigations into several areas of concern, including the revelations of the Twitter files. For this story, we'll go back to
1: Andrew Miller yeah it's been a while since uh we've gotten a batch of the twitter files but we got enough in those first 15 batches (laughs) that uh congress is uh definitely getting to work going through this starting at the beginning Uh, and so they (laughs) they had hearings on wednesday digging into a lot of the allegations um uh from twitter files one about twitter deliberately suppressing the hunter biden laptop story in order to benefit the uh democratic party and actually kind of surprising the uh the one twitter uh executive who was their um twitter's former chief legal officer uh admitted that the decision to block the hunter biden laptop story was uh a mistake now that's a that's a convenient admission to make now that um there have been plenty of surveys show that biden probably would not be in the oval office if voters would have known about that story mm. before the election uh so it's uh it's definitely convenient to censor it before the election wait till you get what you want and then say uh in hindsight when you can't do anything about it that you shouldn't have done that but the uh the other two people who testified one was Joel roth uh who um he he admitted that the censoring the story was a mistake, but then blamed Russia for it, uh, basically saying that, like, well, we shouldn't have uh, censored that story. But there was so much Russian interference in the 2016 election that we were just erring on the side of caution that as soon as we heard that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, we decided uh, we better censor it and then the third man testifying (laughs) uh james baker who's actually not only a former twitter employee but a former fbi employee was the one who came in and really tried to make sure everybody know that what twitter did was fully consistent with the first amendment because uh twitter was making the decision to censor potential rush information itself and there was absolutely uh no pressure coming from his other former employer, the FBI, <laughs> which, if you'll remember, that's that's why James Baker even is a, a former Twitter employee, uh, is because Elon Musk found out that he was redacting information, uh, exposing how, his first employer, the FBI was telling his second employer, Twitter, what to do. Mm-hmm. And so Elon Musk told him to clean out his desk, and that's why we got the other Twitter files... Uh, exposing, <laughs> exposing that Twitter's basically um, not only was there pressure from the FBI, but Twitter was basically like a branch office mm-hmm. of the FBI. Right, and so um, basically the only thing these three guys said that was true was that censoring censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story was. A mistake. Everything else about Russian disinformation and the FBI's non-involvement uh, was more lies that uh, you can uh, uh, don't have to take my word for it. You've got all the 15 Twitter files online. You can go read the internal emails for yourself if you right. <laughs> if you want to see what was happening. But this is a really a big. A huge story that fits right in with, uh, I think, our most popular book now from our editor-in-chief, America Under Attack. I think it's been our most requested book for a little bit now that really exposes just like this uh, uh, spiritual dimension to cast down truth to the ground. And like I said with Twitter, it's like Americans, they they can't even find out what the truth is (laughs) these days because uh, the social media companies, the government's forcing them to not tell it.
0: Yeah, well, uh, America under attack—that is the book to go to. We've also got quite a bit of information about the Twitter files. Uh, Stephen Fleury's has written a number of articles about that. We'll link to those in the show notes as well. Uh, whenever I see these uh, these kinds of investigations going on, like like you said, all of the information is unveiled in those Twitter files, and I don't know that there's any more new information coming out from these guys who are being grilled there in front of uh, the, these representatives other than the fact that they're willing to say whatever they want to say they, they they're they not uh, troubled about lying uh, about what they did uh, but you I always wonder who's to, who's going to be held to account for uh, for what happened here they they say these things and no one ever uh, suffers any penalties for having done these uh, treasonous things
1: yeah that is a really important point because you'd think at least in James <laughs> in James Baker's case uh, there should be some legal uh, I mean he lost his job at Twitter but there, there should be some legal uh, repercussions for actually going in there and working on behalf of a government agency uh, telling a private company what to do like if I think Elon Musk Elon Musk summarized that up where he said if that's not a violation of the First Amendment then right. I don't even know what a violation of a First Amendment would Look like, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. The the other thing that stands out to me is how just completely unrepentant any of these people are, no matter how much exposure of their deeds uh, gets. Uh, they just seemed to think that everything they did was, was uh, exactly right, totally above board. They wouldn't change a thing. Uh, it's quite quite remarkable. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at Trumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Nick Irwin, Parker Campbell, and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Horace Walpole. The whole secret of life is to be interested in one thing profoundly and in a thousand things well. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand
2: your world